0: Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Greg Peterson here, and welcome to the 287th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where three days a week we work together educating and inspiring you to become part of your food revolution. Nature doesn't waste energy, and by using her natural cycles to work in our favor, we can harvest both plants and fish. Let us teach you how. Just text GROWFISH to 33444 or visit Iwanttogrowfish.com and you will receive our free webinar about how to grow your own fish-powered garden. Today on our podcast, we have a member of the upcoming generation of urban farmers. We're talking to Danny Replogle, about Millennials and Urban Farming. Danny is a second-year law student at Lewis & Clark in Portland, Oregon. She fell in love with the sustainable food movement while working as an eighth-grade science teacher in Colorado and spending her Saturdays managing a stand at the Boulder Farmers Market. Danny spent the last summer working toward a sustainable food system model at the Center for Food Safety and will continue working for the public interest throughout the coming semester. When not reading textbooks, she spends her time climbing mountains, writing poetry, and playing ultimate frisbee. Welcome to the show today, Danny.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today?
1: Yeah, I think I always knew that I liked food. I started out going to my first farmer's market growing up in Baltimore. My mom used to take me to the farmer's markets on Saturday morning, and that was always my favorite thing to do each week. And so, but I didn't really know how to get involved in it as a career path until I went to, I went to undergrad at Duke University mm-hmm. and took some environmental science courses there. And through one of those kind of developed my environmental ethic and learned about how important food was in getting a system that wouldn't contribute to climate change. So just kind of gone from there and I kept learning about it.
0: Nice. So you said something that I want you kind of unpack a little bit more for us. You said environmental ethic. Say more about that, would you?
1: Yeah, I think that especially with food, it's really easy to see how the environment is linked to our our moral responsibility. Um, There's people in the future, the kids of the future are depending on us to keep it leave them with an environment that is going to be healthy and going to continue to be productive and sustainable. And so understanding that there are there are ramifications for the things that we're doing. And so we need to be really conscious of making sure that we preserve things for for the future of, of our race and also, you know, other species that are using the planet and have just as much of a right to it as we do.
0: Mm-hmm. So that's very interesting. That's, that's one of the things that I tell people quite often is that, you know, I don't have any kids, but I'm working for a future for your kids, you know, and my niece and nephew and, and making sure that there's, there's a good clean food supply, you know, after I'm gone. So it sounds to me like that's the same, kind of the same thought process. Yeah,
1: definitely. And I think that, it ties into what I'm studying right now because there are I'm sure you know there's a bunch of cases going on on the, the federal and state level right now where kids are suing the government for not uh, taking action on climate change and it's based on you know that same idea that they have a right to, to a clean environment and and so th- one of the rules of government is to ensure that that right is going to be delivered to them.
0: Wow. So hold on. Did I hear you right that you said that there are young people out there that are suing the federal government? Yeah, that's right. Wow. So say more about that, would you?
1: Yeah. So it's, it's a branch of, it's a new branch of legal tactics that's called atmospheric trust litigation. And it is, you know, just what it sounds like that we, there is a public trust, which we put our faith into the government Mm -hmm. for certain resources. And so we expect that those resources are going to be kept pristine for us through through the law and through enforcement mechanisms that the state is supposed to be in charge of and the federal government is supposed to be in charge of. And when the government hasn't, you know, there's no federal law on the books that is really recognizing climate change and addressing the fact that it's happening and we need to be um, working to mitigate it and and reverse some of those effects and deal with those effects and so that is a a breach of trust um, as far as our young people are concerned.
0: Wow, no kidding. And how's that showing up out in the world? I mean, are they they're filing lawsuits?
1: Yeah, there's yeah there's lawsuits filed in a few different states and then the federal case has been getting a lot of the attention. In the state of Oregon, what the case is going forward. And on the federal level, they have moved past the summary judgment stage, which basically a judge just said, you know, they looked at the case and said, this is a legitimate harm that these kids are suffering, which is a huge win because, yeah, people, you know, often discount future effects. And so this this is a big acknowledgement.
0: Yeah. So you said this is a huge win because, can you say more about that?
1: Yeah, I think it's a huge win because at least, if we're not getting anything through legislature that is recognizing that these things are happening and, and agreeing that we're going to have to move forward to deal with it, then at least there is some branch of government that is starting to take responsibility and, and under, you know, acknowledge that we have to deal with, with these problems because they're real. And I think that, you know, the weather events that are going on across the country right now are indicative of the fact that we have a real problem that needs to be solved and, Putting it on the back burner isn't going to yeah. get us
0: moving forward. Well yeah, and the weather events seem to get be getting more intense.
1: Yeah, it's raining ash right now here in Portland over my house.
0: <laughs> oh wow. So raining ash, A S H. So that's from a volcano, right?
1: Not from a volcano, it's from the forest fires that are uh, going on in the Columbia Gorge.
0: Yeah. Wow. Well I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> so what, okay. do you, what are you studying? You're, you go to Lewis and Clark College. You're getting a law degree there. In fact, by the way, my dad actually graduated in the 1950s from Lewis and Clark. Uh, and I've actually visited the campus there about 10 years ago, which is a beautiful campus. Uh, but what are you studying? I'm
1: studying all kinds of different facets of environmental law right now. So there's land use regulations and pesticide registrations and all kinds of other things that are have to go through the government and um, be approved and people that you can sue for not following the right procedures. And so I'm learning how to do all of that stuff. And um, hopefully we'll go into uh, food law, which is kind of this newly recognized branch of law that deals with all things agriculture and making sure that people have equal opportunity to access good,
0: healthy food. Wow. So there's a new branch called food law.
1: Yeah. I wouldn't say that it's new. You know, it's just, it's kind of being recognized now as, as something that you can go and study.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. How cool is that? What are you learning in that arena?
1: Well, it's my second week of class though. So ah. I've had <laughs> one, one food law class, but I worked at Center for Food Safety over the summer, which um, in Portland, it's a, there's an office that just has two attorneys in it right now, but they work on all kinds of different food issues and petitioning the government for sustainable food interests. And then, you know, if people are doing things that are not contributing to the vision that we have for a sustainable food movement, then we have legal methods that we can use to try to make sure that our interests are being represented and that they're not hurting the
0: environment. Right, right. Wow, how cool is this? I am so glad, first of all, that you're doing this, and secondly, that this is finally here.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's an exciting movement to be a part of and, and something that I think is really positive. You know, food is so interrelated with culture and and togetherness and family and friends. And so I, that's one thing that really drove me to want to be involved in, in food particularly as a way to improve our environment Yeah, and our lives.
0: <laughs> beautiful. Beautiful. So how did you become involved in sustainable farming? Let's go there next.
1: Yeah. So I was really lucky to get a job working at the Boulder farmers market a few years ago when I was teaching in Colorado. I, worked for a company called MM Local. And their business model is basically working with sustainable family farms to buy up all of their surplus produce that they have at the end of each season because a lot of that is contributing to food waste and especially, you know, pieces of food that are perfectly good to eat but don't necessarily look super pretty. And so they were getting thrown away and, and that was a big problem. So they buy up that surplus and then process it by... You know, preserving. So everything's all natural, but it's like uh, canned peaches and jars of applesauce and really amazing pickled beets and everything. And so they were making these like value added items with these foods and then selling them back to people so that they could enjoy them. So it was really benefiting the farmers and the, the consumers as well. So I got involved doing that and just, I loved being part of the farmer's market. It's one of my favorites jobs that I've ever had. And I knew that I wanted to keep doing that. So when I came to to Portland, I found this educational farm called Zanger Farm. And it is just one of the most amazing places that I've ever been. They have this land and they use it to organically grow food. And they're super involved in the community with making sure that um, their CSAs are going to people who really need them. And doing work with prescription veggies so if you're getting snap dollars being able to use those to buy things from the farm Mm -hmm. and so and i volunteer there and was doing lots of just kind of farming and helping out with the field trips and everything and so yeah that's how i've managed to stay involved with sustainable farming
0: nice so what are some of the food law issues that you've worked on danny
1: well one of the biggest things that I was working on over the summer at Center for Food Safety is
0: opposing the this
1: approval that has gone through for basically what amounts to industrial level aquaculture going on in the Gulf of Mexico.
2: Mm, mm-hmm.
1: So I'm sure many of of the Urban Farm podcast listeners are aware of the issues that have arisen because of industrial farming. We have mono cropping that is ruining our soil quality yep. and lots of problems with pesticides, especially now with the whole dicamba disaster going on. And so the approval of industrial aquaculture in the Gulf just really kind of shows that we have to apply these lessons that we're, we're learning. There's Industrial farming has all kinds of negative consequences. And we are moving away from that as a country. There's, you know, the slow food movement and the growth of farmers markets has been just really astronomical lately. And so people are wanting to get away from this. And yet we have approval of these huge facilities that are going to, you know, pollute the water and are going to drive local fishermen out of business because they can't compete with the economies that, of scale that are going on with this aquaculture. And mm-hmm. I just think that if we can't stop this, then it's you've just really got to ask yourself who is benefiting from these situations because I don't think that it's the people.
0: Yeah, you you said something. You said the dicamba disaster. So you're going to need to educate me on what that is because I've not heard about that.
1: Yeah. So dicamba is a really harmful pesticide that just kind of eradicates anything that it comes into contact with, unless The seeds have been genetically modified to be dicamba resistant. So dicamba is being used because we are needing stronger pesticides. And the reason that farmers are turning to this is because weeds have started to develop resistance to the pesticides that were being used. So things like Roundup, because Roundup has been you know used so widely because of Roundup resistant seeds, we are now seeing weeds that are that have responded to that, and so. Dicamba is just this new big pesticide and it just is kind of, you can see the, it's not hard to see the path that this is going to take. You introduced the widespread use of one pesticide and so we developed these super weeds that have become resistant to the strain. So you get a bigger, more powerful pesticide mm-hmm. and you're just going to get bigger and more powerful weeds. So I think that's another legal battle that's going to be fought here, that is being fought very shortly. There yeah. are several, several lawsuits on the books that are fighting that registration.
0: Wow. Wow. So what can people do to support legal initiatives around sustainable food and, and, and the environment?
1: So I think people can become involved by educating themselves on the issues and then bringing it to the legislature or to their congressperson's attention that they know about these issues and that they are going to be supportive of efforts to um, try to eradicate these environmental problems. And that we're not just going to, you know, not pay attention or turn the blind eye to the issues that are going on Um, legal legal progress happens when you have uh, lots of of interest in the public and you have to have, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has said a lot that you have to have a social movement before you can affect change through the law. Um, The law doesn't lead the way, you know, we have to have a change in our society first. And so I think it's on people to make sure that you're supporting the the initiatives that you want to see and letting people know that, that we're paying attention.
0: Right. Wow. Excellent. Excellent. So you've taught before. You were a teacher. How do you teach your students about sustainable food practices?
1: I think that the best way to teach kids about sustainable food is to get them out on farms and, and get them their hands dirty and, and let them eat the food. I You know, I had so many kids, Who I taught in the classroom who would tell me that they they didn't like vegetables or that all they wanted to eat was you know like hot cheetos. But now that I'm working on an educational farm, you get kids out in the fields and there's no kid that turns down free samples when they're out there and when they're in the field actually picking the food. Everybody wants to. I've watched kids eat. So much raw kale that I just wouldn't have. (laughs) Nice. I wouldn't have, yeah. You know, you wouldn't think that kids would be into that stuff, but they're so eager to try things. They just need to be in there and definitely the cooking side of it too. I think having cooking classes and getting kids involved in those is really, really awesome because everybody likes to eat. Giving them that experience so that they can then have some point of reference when we're talking about the environmental issues that go on with it, I think is really, really important
0: no oh, amen to that amen to that so what do you think your generation's food system is going to look like?
1: I think that things are slowly but surely going to going to shrink back down I think that you know people didn't did not even used to know about what it meant to eat locally and now we have lots of really innovative companies who are trying and farmers who are trying to get people excited about food that's grown in their areas. And, you know, people are learning what it means to eat seasonally and be, you know, be look forward to food that you couldn't have all year long because it's not, it's not grown during that time period around you. So I think, I, I think that the, the rise of local farmers markets and CSAs and all of that, I think is going to continue as people, you know, fall in love with the food that is grown around them. And, and I hope that, everybody gets a chance to visit a farm that's nearby them so that you can meet the people who are growing your food because I think that 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 communal aspect of it is going to be a powerful driver in getting us to a more localized system.
0: Yeah. So why do you think it's important for somebody to know their farmer?
1: I think it's important for you to know your farmer because you can understand the the struggles that go into producing food and it's it's more likely to stick with you when you're in the supermarket and you're thinking, because it takes a lot of, you know, it takes work to, to eat sustainably. It's not necessarily an easy thing. And it's definitely, you know, everybody has those days when it would be really convenient to just...
0: Eat at McDonald's.
1: Yeah, go to eat McDonald's or buy something frozen. And so I think when you have that personal connection, it's a lot, it's a lot more, you're more likely to make a decision that you're going to be happy with later.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Plus, plus once we're eating it, you know, fast food, I have found for me personally that I don't feel so good afterwards.
1: Oh, totally. Yeah. I, I have, I have pretty much been off of fast food since I was maybe 13. Cause I remember wow. I hadn't, hadn't eaten it for a while and then, you know, was with a family friend and we stopped at McDonald's and I, I think I had a hamburger, and then I remember an hour later throwing the hamburger back up because oh, my stomach was just right. so couldn't handle it. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, it hasn't been that long for me that I've been off of uh, fast food, but I'll bet it's been a good 10 years for me that I haven't done, you know, that I haven't done fast food. And yeah, so it's. Uh... Yeah, but,
1: and you have to go off of it to kind of realize. Mm-hmm. Yeah identify
0: the that you feel so much better without it yeah so you're younger in the millennial kind of generation right that's right if if you were a millennial out there listening to this podcast really actually if you're anybody out there listening to this podcast what are the top two or three things that you would suggest that they do to get started in plugging into their local food system
1: the first thing that I would say to do is to find a farm near you that you can, or even a community garden. I mean, not everybody ha- is lucky enough to live in a place where there's farms at such close hand, but there are gardens springing up everywhere. And so just spending a little bit of your time. I had a friend who recently showed me an article that was saying how dirt has microbes in it that release chemicals in your brain that make you happy. I know. Um, isn't that great? So- yeah, it's neat. I mean, you know, positive feedback cycle, if I've ever heard one. So right, exactly. I, yeah, I think you just have to get out there and get your hands dirty to understand what it is that everybody's so excited about. And you'll meet such great people doing that too. I, when I was first volunteering at, at the farm near me, there were three or four people who were, were there on the same day at the same time. And we would sit around and, and weed for hours, but we would just have these long, like, almost therapy sessions where we talked about the most like in-depth things. (laughs) And, and so it was just a really awesome way to connect with people in the community and people that were of all different ages and backgrounds that I wouldn't normally have a chance to talk to. So food really, yeah, bring, bring people together. So I would say volunteer at a farm trying for a garden and, and trying to to make sure that you are involved some way by that. And then uh, go to your farmer's market because it's, there's I don't know that's my favorite place definitely my happy oh,
0: spot Even, amen to that I love that you said <laughs> your happy spot
1: yeah I think and and you can and you know talk to the people say, eat the samples I when I was at the farmer's market when I was working there I was you know most of, most of what I did was just handing out samples and, mm-hmm. and people not always buying anything but I love hearing what what people were doing with the ingredients and and how people were using different things and, and what they had noticed about it. And so it's just this really, really cool way to connect, again, to connect with people. So yeah. I think that's one of the best things about food.
0: Yeah. Well, and, you know, when you have a party at your house, where do people gather at most of the time? In oh, the, yeah,
1: in the kitchen. In the kitchen, around sure. the
0: food. Exactly. So yeah. really, you know, in a, a farmer's market is just really one great big food kitchen for people to gather.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so much different stuff to try. I I, oh, yeah, yeah. I would never know about so many different vegetables if, if I hadn't been mm-hmm. at the farmer's market. And...
0: Yeah, perfect. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it.
1: Without a doubt, my biggest failure was My first year of teaching, so I was teaching eighth grade science, and I was fresh out of college, and I was doing it through Teach for America, and so I hadn't really even, you know, I didn't, I didn't study teaching when I was an undergrad, and we did a little bit of preparation over the summer where we kind of did an intensive teacher training sessions, and I was doing some some grad school classes on top of it, but there's just no, there's no way that you can prepare to be in a classroom with you know, thirty eighth graders at a time
2: mm-hmm.
1: in course of a few months. There's just there's nothing that can prepare you for for being up there and doing that. And you know, I I would cry from kid, you know, whatever it was from kids being being rude or not being able to convey what I was trying to teach them right, like appropriately, and they weren't getting it. And, and it was yeah, I would cry almost every night. It was such mm-hmm. a hard time.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry.
1: No, but it was it was really really important that I had that experience because I don't think that I had I hadn't had a a really a professional failure or I hadn't you know I didn't really ever fail a class or anything like that and so it was really meaningful for me to learn the amount of work that goes into teaching Mm -hmm. and you know in order to make my life less. (laughs) less miserable. I had to become really, really organized and I had to get over wanting kids to like me and just focus on what I actually wanted to get out of teaching, which was that they would be learning something meaningful from me. And so that was, that was definitely a really hard thing to do and learning professionalism at that same time because I had never been in, you know, I had, I had jobs working at Panera or whatever it was, but it's, so different when you're out there on your own in the real world, trying to interact <laughs> with with real adults. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah,
0: and a classroom full of eighth graders.
1: Right, they do not care about your personal problems, <laughs>
0: right. and,
1: and you know you have to. It's your number one priority to be taking care of them, and so to go from that shift from college, where everything's about you, to going to a place where almost nothing about you and mm-hmm. everything about them was just really, really hard. But I don't know how I got through it, except for that I learned from the teachers who are around me, people who had been in that, you know, who had everybody goes, all teachers go through their first year and everybody is quick to tell you how incredibly hard it is. And so they were all really willing to help me at my school. And I, you know, there's still some of my closest friends and mentors who, were the teachers that I worked with that year. So Mm -hmm. I, yeah, owe it to them that I was able to get through that year. And, and then everything, the learning curve is so steep, you know, the next year is a hundred times easier the year after that. Yeah. Yeah. So sticking with it.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you for doing that. Thank you for doing that. So what do you consider your biggest success?
1: I think my biggest success right now, and again, it's something that I owe to teaching where every second of your time is really has to be managed and valuable. I think that I'm most proud of learning how to, to balance work and life and, and prioritize what's important over, over what's not. And I think Mm -hmm. the like most important thing is to take time for yourself because it's, it's easy to look around you and think that you're not, you're not doing enough, especially in law school right now. I, you know, I could work a hundred percent of my time right. and there could still be more things that I could be doing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And you're just like constantly being inundated with more and more things that you could do in ways that you could help with everything going on right now. And I have learned to take the time to put that stuff away for a little while and make sure that, you know, whether it's playing ultimate or just walking my dog through the woods or, or whatever it is, I can't be a productive person and help with all of these issues if I'm not making sure that I'm happy. So I I really like the balance that I've obtained in my life right now.
0: Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. That is, at 56, I can say that is a really, really, really valuable lesson to know at your age. Yeah, well, hopefully I can remember it, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So what drives you?
1: I'm really driven by my friends. I have my three best female friends are some of the most inspirational people. They are the most inspirational people that I know personally. Like uh, one. Yeah. I mean, my, yeah, my best friend, Jenny, she's in a like special needs classroom and she just gives, you know, so much for her kids and seeing that, that, that level of caring in somebody I didn't even, you know, I didn't even know that that, that kind of thing existed and you know another one of my friends laura is working as a agent of organizational and social change in mobile home communities and my friend liz is just like so passionate i've never met somebody so passionate about their work and she studies starfish and just just absolutely like loves it and so i see them and and how much they are putting into the things that they're doing and Mm -hmm. and just making sure that every interaction that they have with the human being is is lifting them up and making them feel better and so when I don't know when I when you're involved in the environmental movement it's really easy to like get cynical about things and so I I really enjoy knowing people who are such examples of of beauty and human beings and so yeah my friends are definitely a huge driver for me
0: nice beautifully said thank you so much If you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? I think
1: I could recommend any books by this author. So I'll just give you the most recent one that I just finished. So the author's name is Tom Robbins, and the name of the book was Skinny Legs and All. And it's kind of a hard book to explain the plot of, but it's about the weight of culture on how we look at things and Mm. trying to make sure that you are able to separate what are your feelings about something and and how you view the world and go about your go about engaging with the world versus how we're conditioned by society to do yeah. that. And Tom Robbins just approaches these huge philosophical topics with such humor and I he made, you know, he made me feel understood and and I think I learned a lot from him, so I, everybody should read a book
0: by him. Perfect. Author again is
1: Tom Robbins.
0: Tom Robbins and the latest book is
1: skinny legs and all.
0: Okay, perfect. Perfect. Thank you. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners?
1: My advice that I still sometimes struggle to follow, but that I'm really, really working on is to not worry so much about doing something that's out of this world. Extraordinary. Mm -hmm. I used to think that I was going to, you know, be an ambassador for the UN or I was going to be a best-selling author or something where you could, where if I Googled myself, I would have, you know, the first five pages of the results would be about me and not some other Danny Rupp And I think that comes from all this pressure that kids are under to, Mm -hmm. you know, get a great job and get into a really good school. And if you don't own your own nonprofit by the time you're 18, then you're a failure. And so I I got a lot of anxiety from that all growing up, and I don't think that it it helped me in the slightest. And so, when I don't, yeah, one of the things that I've learned from being an adult for the short time that I've been an adult was that you it feels so good to just help one person with something with something little, you know, and and that can really be really meaningful. So I yeah I think. I don't know if it sounds like good advice to think smaller, but, you know, focus on focus on your sphere of influence and about being happy and doing something good in that sphere, and I think that, you know, forget about all the awards and you'll
0: be a happier person. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Danny. Yeah, you're welcome. So how can our listeners get a hold of you?
1: You can email me. My email address at school is my last name and my first initial at lclark.edu so it's r-e-p-l-o-g-l-e-d at lclark.edu or you can find me on social media I'm on Facebook Danny Reppogal I'm on Instagram so yeah get in touch with you
0: perfect so you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Danny that's d-a-n-i well that's it for today thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Nature doesn't waste energy, and by using her natural cycles to work in our favor, we can harvest both plants and fish. Let us teach you how. Just text GROWFISH to 33444 or visit IWantToGrowFish.com and you will receive our free webinar about how to grow your own fish-powered garden.